Bibles tonight, if you would please, to Revelation chapter 16. Tonight we are continuing our trek through Revelation. We've been in the book for a little bit over a year now, and most of the time that we've spent in Revelation has been covering the period of time known as the Tribulation. I'm very thankful that I'm one of God's people. Um, We look forward anxiously to the time that Christ will return And the rapture of the church in Scripture is called the blessed hope. It's something for us to look forward to. I don't even know that, well, we can't even describe it and explain what it's going to be like. Christ is going to change our bodies and then take us to heaven. But the same thing is not true for those that are left here when Christ returns. Because he comes back to this world to take only the believers back with him. And so those who haven't trusted Christ will be left here to go through this terrible time of tribulation, uh, this seven-year period that we've been talking about for such a long time. But when Christ comes back, we do need to be aware that that's not the end of all things. There is, uh, we believe, still 1,007 years of earth's history that remain. And this particular seven-year period that we've been dealing with is uh, really different than anything the world has ever seen before, and certainly different from the thousand years that follows it, because during that time Christ is going to rule in a kingdom of perfect righteousness. And these seven years are aptly named tribulation, because during this time there are these terrible judgments that will come that will characterize life on the planet. The last part of the seven years is known as the great tribulation, as if the first or last three and a half years, uh, as if the uh, first three and a half years weren't bad enough, but it's going to be much, much worse in the last three and a half years. And then drilling down a little bit further, when you get towards the end of uh, the end of the Great Tribulation, when you're coming down right next to the close of it, then the last few weeks of it will bring on these rapid-fire judgments, just a blitzkrieg of things that God is going to bring on the earth, one judgment immediately following another until Christ brings the world to a close. And these are the judgments that are known as the seven last plagues. They're also known as God's vials of wrath. God has, will appoint seven angels who will administer these seven last plagues. And as they pour out their vials over the earth, God begins to purge the world before Christ comes in the kingdom age. Now, chapter 16 is what describes to us these uh, last plagues. Six of them are described in somewhat minor detail. Then the seventh one is introduced to us in the end of the chapter. Then we have a pause in chapter 17 and 18 and the first of 19, and we're going to back up and we're going to see how uh, the Antichrist has developed his political system and the religious system. And then we get back into that seventh plague, which is the battle of Armageddon, and then, of course, the end of the world. Now, the first three parts, or first three plagues, we've already talked about. That was in the first part of the message. So we're going to go a little bit further this week. We're going to look at two more. Next week, we're going to look at the sixth plague. And then, in one more sermon, we're going to look at the seventh and the final plague. And just get an introduction into that. As I said, we'll come back to an, and talk about it a great deal a little bit later after chapter 17 and 18. So if you'll look at Revelation 16, stand with me, please. We're going to read a few verses here. Uh, We'll start with verse number 1 and read down to verse number 11, and this will encompass all that we're talking about tonight. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. 
And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shalt be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which had power over these plagues, and they repented not to give him the glory. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for those who've been able to come tonight to hear your word. Lord, we pray that you would just open this up before us and help us uh, to get a good grasp of what you'd have us to know from this portion of Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I look out over the congregation tonight, I think most of you have been here for uh, the entire study, most of the study that we've had in Revelation. But there may be some who come in and they're just a little bit lost about what we're talking about here. And since it's taken us over a year to get this far, I really don't have time to go back and catch everybody up. But I do want to make one more explanatory comment about the tribulation before we move on. And that is when Christ removes his people from the world, it means for a period of time there aren't going to be any Christians in the world. Now, for many people that live in the Bay Area, that sounds like a really good idea because uh, then they'll be able to live in a place where they won't have Christians to bother them and they'd be rid of all of us that are messing up their ideas of intolerance and all of that. But a world without Christians is not really a very good idea. And that's because while we're here, God restrains much of the evil that goes on in the world. And people just will not be able to imagine. You can't imagine what the world would be like when God takes all of the Christians out and then God turns evil loose, turns or takes the restra- all the restraints off of Satan and lets him do whatever he pleases. It's going to be a quite different world. You think that murder is bad and you, you think that uh, pornography is degrading, you think the drug trade is bad and all of that. Just wait until all these restraints are removed. And then the crime rate doubles, it triples, quadruples. Uh, Think what it would be like to have a child molester living in every other house on the block where you live. So you just don't really have an idea what it's going to be like truly when Christ comes back and Christians are taken out. The crime rate is going to increase if you want to even call it crime because then it might not even be labeled as that. And during this time, this new world leader comes on the scene and he has all the world's governments under his authority and he will rule the world and his kingdom will be filled with vice and even will encourage sinfulness and vice and corruption. And of course, this man we know as the Antichrist, he's against Christ, he opposes everything that God is and with all the strength that he can muster, he tries to overthrow God. And 
those that come into alliance with him will do the worst that they possibly can to anyone who claims to know Jehovah God. Now, during this period of time, there will be people who will be saved. Um, Many people believe actually millions will come to Christ during that time. But that doesn't mean that because now that Christianity has made a resurgence and they're now Christians in the world, that evil is going to be restrained. Because during this entire seven-year period, God turned Satan loose. And so all of those that do turn to Christ and begin to follow him, they live every single day of their lives with a threat of death hanging over them. They're shut out from all commerce and driven into hiding. And they have to leave their homes and even millions of them will be martyred during this particular time. And so when we speak of these seven last plagues that God brings on the earth, this is God putting an end to it all. This is God's wrath poured out particularly on the Antichrist and all those who follow him. So we're speaking now about these last days, and this is the time when the Antichrist kingdom is going to be broken up and broken down, and it's not going to be a pretty sight. What we have here is a scene of bloodletting, of carnage, of disaster, because God is going to beat out the life of everyone who defies him and has persecuted his people. So what we have here is a picture of God that most people never see. Whenever they think of God or whenever we think of Jesus, we really don't, most people don't want to think about judgment, but rather they want to think about the sweet Jesus or the Jesus who tucks little kids into bed at night and gives gingerbread snacks and things like that. And make no mistake about it, we do believe in an all-compassionate Savior. And we do believe that right now he is in the saving business and, and, and he exhorts people who have heavy burdens to come to him for rest. And we're going to preach that Jesus died on the cross, that he came to save lost sinners. He freely gave his life's blood in order that we might have his mercy and be forgiven of our sins and we would be able to go to heaven. And Jesus truly is all of that. But there's also another side of God. God is a holy God. And God is not always going to exist, coexist with sin. And so he's going to rid the world of sin. And the object is that God is going to bring the world back into the pristine state that it was in originally at the creation. Sin is an aberration to man. And so what God does, he's going to rule, rid the world of sin. And the way that he does that is to start at its source. And that's that he takes Satan and does something with him. But then you have all of these people that have been infected with sin. And God has to deal with them as well. And so this is what God is doing in his judgment. This is what we're discussing. God purging the world of sin and removing the cancer of it. And the cure is not pleasant. The cure is very difficult. There's no way that you can make it fun. And so we see it here as God pours out his wrath. And it's hard in our imagination to understand all of this. Uh, Seeing God in his holiness and how that so starkly contrasts to the blackness of sin. There aren't any physics for this. There are no natural explanations for it. We're dealing with things that are in the spiritual realm. And I think it's entirely possible that not even heaven itself, all of those beings that are in heaven truly understand the depths of this, of what God is doing. So what God is doing is dealing with sin in his own way. This is the way he does it. And for believers, God has dealt with our sins at the cross. 
I, I can't fully explain how that God did this, how he put our sins on Christ and then through that atoning sacrifice, he took our sins away. I mean, I, I understand the theological explanations of all that, but to tell you actually what took place in the mind of God as he poured out his wrath on his own son hanging on the cross, there's no way that I can explain that. No one can. That, that eludes me. But God did take care of the believer's sins. But the problem is most people are not believers. And so this is the way that God deals with their sins. He pours out wrath and he judges. And folks, that's not mine to take it out of God's character. I have to preach this exactly as the Word of God gives it to us. Well, we need to move on from this. Uh, You know, sometimes the introductions get longer than the rest of the sermon. But I, I think it's important for us to understand how did we get to this place in Revelation? And sometimes people drop in on a Sunday night and we're in the middle of all this and it, it's a shock to their system because they don't exactly know where we're going with this and they don't know how to make sense of it all. On Easter Sunday morning, I was preaching on God's wrath poured out on sin while Christ was hanging on the cross. And I was speaking of hell and talking about the blood. And I wasn't ten minutes into the sermon before some people walked out. And that's because people are not used to hearing this side of God. Churches don't preach on it anymore. And so people will come to an Easter service and they want to get their yearly dose of Christianity. And uh, they're looking for Easter eggs and daisies and things like that. And, And they really don't like it when you get into all these other things like we talked about this past Easter. So they want to come to church and they want to feel all warm and fuzzy when they leave. And so... They're content to do that, then skip over a few more months, and then at Christmas time come back and get their dose again. And so what that makes me is the mean preacher who ruined Easter and the Grinch that stole Christmas. So um, you have to be here for all of it. You got, as I said last week, you have to get the balance of the entire ministry to find out where we're going. Well, that's enough introduction. Uh, it's no wonder it takes us so long to get through a book of the Bible. Uh, So what about the plagues? The first one's verse number 2. And the first went, that's the angel went, and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. Now we call vial number 1 the boils because of the beast. Now right away we see God's intention here. He is targeting the Antichrist and all of his followers. These are the ones who persecuted. These are wicked, vile men and women, and they hate God. And so what God does, he blesses them for their hatred. His blessing is these grievous sores that he gives. These sores are like boils. They're like open, festering wounds that won't heal, full of raw, exposed nerves that are painful and irritating, and they can't be numbed. There's no medicine for this. There are no pain pills for it. And while that's going on, as soon as this happens, immediately there comes a second plague in verse number 3. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man. And every living soul died in the sea. Vial number 2 was the souls of the sea. There's a second angel, and he steps forward. He flies out over the angels, and he pours out a plague in which he turns all the waters and all of the oceans to blood. Some argue about whether that's real blood or is it just the color of blood. I tend to take it in a literal way. But if you have another explanation for it, and I'm not necessarily going to fight over that, but at least it tells us here it is what seems like the blood of a dead man. You know, I've only 
examined a cadaver one time in my life. When I was in college, uh, anthropology class in college, we took a little trip over to the University of Kentucky Medical Center and into the research department, and there was this huge room that was filled with dead bodies. And they were cutting these bodies apart, taking them apart, and it wasn't a pleasant sight. Now, most of the blood in those bodies, of course, they drained out beforehand, but what was left was really, it was just clotted and rotten. Now, you imagine what it would be like if all of a sudden the seeds turned to clotting blood. The fish suck in that blood, the gills become clogged with it, and they suffocate, then finally every living thing in the seas dies. And every seaside village, every city on on the coastlines, they're filled with this smell of all these rotting fish that have washed up on the shore. A few months ago, there was a whale. You probably maybe saw this in the paper. There's a whale that washed up next to Fort Bragg. And this was, I can't remember, I think it maybe was a gray whale, a sperm whale or something like that, but a huge whale that had been hit by a a ship's propeller, a large ship propeller. And, And the whale died, and so it washed up on the beach. Well, they had to do something to get rid of that whale. So they were there cutting it all up and and cutting it into pieces and trying to haul off the carcass. And they said the stench of that was just terrible. It was horrible as they were trying to do that. Now, can you imagine all of the whales and all of the seas that this happens to them? The blowholes are plugged up with rotten, coagulated blood. Imagine what that would smell like. And we're not just talking about the whales. We're talking about all the fish in the sea. I remember a few years ago, we uh, came out here to the West Coast on vacation. I think that we were in Oregon at the time. I believe it was where we were. And we were out on the beach, and I found a starfish that had washed up on the beach. And I thought it would be a really good idea to keep that starfish. And I didn't know that you had to dry, you know, dry them out and go through all that process for days. And so I just put the starfish in the trunk of the car. And so in a few days, the car, you couldn't even stand to be in the car. And that uh, starfish was right there next to our suitcases where our clothes were. And so for, for that, those few days we were traveling, our, and we smelled like rotty, rotten starfish. Well, that, you know, that was enough tribulation for me. I don't need any more of that. So, but that, you know, it really doesn't even touch what we're reading about here. So that plague's going on. All the oceans are turned into blood. And then immediately there comes a third angel, verse number 4. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and the fountains of waters, and they became blood. So vial number 3 is that all water is wastewater. So God isn't content just destroying the oceans, but he also destroys fresh water. So rivers and lakes and streams, they're all turned to blood. You turn on the tap and out comes a bloody mess. Get into the shower, it looks like the scene from Psycho. So water, we, we know that's an essential element of life. We have to have that. And very soon people are choking because there's no water to drink. And I suppose that the soft drink companies, Coke and Pepsi and all of that, they'll have a field day for a little while as people are trying to quench their thirst with those. But those also contain water. So I would think that the taste of those is just a little bit off when you drink it. Sort of like when they introduced new Coke and nobody would drink it. Maybe that's what it's going to be like. So we covered that last week. And because the Antichrist loved the, the, the blood of the martyrs, God returns blood for blood, and he simply drowns the Antichrist kingdom, the oceans and the rivers and all fresh water turned to blood. 
Well, we're ready to go on to the fourth plague. And plague number four, vial number four, is the scorching sun. Verses 8 and 9. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. Now remember, these are plagues that are coming rapidly, one right after the other. No sooner than one is done, here comes another one right on its heels, and there is no let-up in this. I mean, it's not as if the problem of the boils and the water, that's gone, and now they've got something new to deal with. I mean, these effects are ongoing. So what we might be looking, uh, the world might be looking at then is, is several weeks of this, of just one right after another, these plagues piling up on one another. The next one is a plague that hits the sun. And, of course, that can't help but remind us of who controls all of the natural forces in the universe. God speaks, and in a flash, he alters any part of nature that he wants to, and he can completely turn things around. You know, scientists have figured out the chemistry and the physics of how the sun works, they think. Uh, They think they know how the universe runs. They have a pretty good handle on the way that they think things work. And I think we have an interesting comment about this from Peter. He's relating end-time events as he's writing in Second Peter. And in chapter 3, he says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, that's an interesting statement that's made there. Let me read to you William McDonald's comments on this. He's describing these scoffers, and here's what he writes. What they really say is this. You Christians have been threatening us with warnings about a terrible judgment upon the world. You tell us that God is going to intervene in history, punish the wicked, and destroy the earth. It's all a pack of nonsense. We have nothing to fear. We can live as we please. There is no evidence that God has ever intervened in history. Why should we believe that he ever will? Their conclusion is based on the careless hypothesis that since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They say that nature invariably follows uniform laws and that there are no supernatural interventions, that there is a natural explanation for everything. They believe in the law of uniformitarianism. This law states that existing processes in nature have always acted in the same manner and with essentially the same intensity as at present, and that these processes are sufficient to account for all the changes that have taken place. There is a vital link between the law of uniformitarianism and the usual theories of evolution. The theory of the progressive development of living organisms from pre-existing types depends on the supposition that conditions have been fairly uniform. If this earth has been racked by cataclysms and catastrophes, then some of the presuppositions of Darwinian evolution are affected. Now, if we take that comment and we plug that into what it says in Revelation chapter 16, we would see that scientific theory is turned on its head. Scientists have their scenarios for how long the sun will last, and they believe that Everything's going to proceed in an orderly fashion, just as it always has. The laws of nature are, after all, the laws of nature, and they're actually a law unto themselves, and there is no supernatural governance over uh, what takes place in nature. But they're wrong, because here it shows us that God, who controls all natural laws, uh, 
demonstrates that the son is not on autopilot. God is controlling those processes that are taking place. So God makes one change, and suddenly the sun intensifies, and it begins to scorch the earth. And I think that probably this is even more peculiar and pointed than that, because as the sun begins to scorch the earth, most likely the only ones that are affected by this are actually the ones that are in the kingdom of the beast. The Christians, those who have received Christ during this time, are going to be unaffected by this. And so what God does, he takes the sun, and like a laser, he pinpoints the light, like focusing it through a magnifying glass. And he affects only those people that are followers of the Antichrist. Now, an interesting thing about it is, according to the Scripture, they know that God is the one who does this. Now, this is not, these aren't scientists that are any longer saying, well, well, it's the natural forces and, and we've got an explanation for it all. No, no, the Scripture says they know who's doing this. Now, remember back in an earlier part of Revelation, God had blocked out the sun for one-third of the day. The sun didn't shine, the stars didn't shine. That was under the fourth trumpet judgment. In Revelation 8, 12, it says, And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars. So as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. So it may very well be that for a period of time during the day that the earth is plunged into sub-freezing temperatures. Now here is the reverse of that, because now the sun becomes scorching hot. This is what you call real global warming. And, this, and this, rapid, this rapid melting of the polar ice caps is probably a result of this. And, and uh, the glaciers will be melting. And scientists know that if you melt the polar ice caps, melt the glaciers, then the level of the oceans begins to rise. And they tell us that coastal cities will be flooded. New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles. Cities all around the world will be flooded. Now you think for a moment what that water is going to be like that floods all these cities. What's happened prior to this? All of the oceans have been turned to blood. Now you're, you're adding something on top of all of this now. Now what washes in over all these cities is this ocean of blood and just adds to the misery. And I also think that there could be another effect in the change of the sun. Now there are many creationists who believe that before the flood that the earth was enveloped in a vapor canopy and that's what caused a, a greenhouse effect upon the earth. And so the earth in the time prior to the flood was really lush with vegetation. And this canopy that was over the earth is what filtered out many of the harmful rays of the sun. So that, I mean, it's really probably the outcome of that is the long lives that people lived prior to the flood. Methuselah, what, 969 years old and others that lived to be over 900. So you had these really long ages and it's surmised that the reason for that is because the harmful rays of the sun were filtered out. But when the flood came, much of the water that was in that canopy uh, began to fall. That's what enabled it to, to rain for 40 days and 40 nights straight. And it wasn't sprinkling then. I mean, we're talking about buckets of rain. This is rain not measured in inches. This is rain measured in feet. And so finally, all of that canopy over the earth was expended. And now the earth is no longer covered with the dense vegetation because of, of the, uh, the canopy that's there. And so after the flood, you begin to see the lifestyles begin to shorten. And so finally, of course, they come down to the time of life that we have now. So in this period of tribulation, it could be that 
what God does, he gives these people immense doses of radiation so that their skin literally melts from their bones. Now, you look at that and you think, well, if there's anything that's going to change people, if there's anything that would cause someone to turn to God, this would be it. These plagues are coming, people are suffering, and so we would expect that people would turn to God. But do you remember what we talked about last week? God's day of grace is over. I covered that in the first part of the message. Repentance is a gift from God. A repentance is one of God's graces. And unless God allows men to repent, they won't repent. There are people that experience even terrible sicknesses right now. And you would expect that when someone is going through a, a, a horrible sickness, cancer, whatever it might be, that what a person should do is immediately turn to God. And we notice that there are some people who pretend that they do, and they act like they're going to turn to God. And for a little while, it looks like they've repented. But all that they've really done is just tried to save their skin. And as soon as the crisis is over, they turn away from God. J.A. Seiss um, is a commentator who lived in the late, uh, late part of the 19th century. And he says, Many are waiting for times of affliction and death to bring them to repentance and salvation. But those who willfully send away their good days count in vain on something softening and remedial from the judgments of their despised and incense maker. The sun may scorch and exhort still further blasphemies, but it cannot change the stubborn heart or burn into it the saving fear and love of God. Sin is a cancer which, if left to run too long, can never more be cured. After judgment, plague descends. Another judgment, plague descends, but with no better effect. Now, the point here is that God is not using these plagues for the purpose of bringing people to repentance. This is not God's intent. His intent here is judgment. It's judgment upon their sins. And so this is judgment and poured out on them because of their former non-repentance. So they suffer the consequences of all of this. And that's not the end of it because there's more of these plagues that will come. And then even then it's not the end of it because there's still an eternity of hell that comes after that. And men still do not repent of their sins because God does not allow them to do it. Now, remember this preview we have in chapter 14. It said, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Now, I have to tell you about this side of God just as surely as I have to tell you about that other side. I, I tell you about mercy and love and grace that God has, but you have to know this side as well. And people had better get a grasp of both sides of God and turn to him before it's too late. So we trust him right now for his mercy and his love and his grace. And then we don't have to experience his wrath later. So there are sores on men. The sea and the fresh water become blood. The sun turns turn scorching hot. Four plagues are done and then comes a fifth. Verse number 10. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast. And its kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain. And blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And repented not of their deeds. 
Vial number five is darkness and despair. This fifth one seems a little bit strange to us because of what happened in the fourth. There, the fourth, we saw the sun has turned scorching hot. And now the fifth one, there's total darkness. Now, I've already told you that the plagues are overlapping. And so how are we going to get intensified light combined with darkness? How are you going to do that? Well, I think the answer to this is a matter of location. The fifth file seems like it's concentrated in one place, and that's the location of the Antichrist. Now, if you believe that to be the rebuilt city of Babylon, which we'll get into in chapter 17, or if you think that's the city of Rome, whichever it is, the Antichrist government is centralized into this place. So this is the capital. This is the place where he rules. Here the scripture says that this is the seat of the beast. We've seen that word before. Seat is the Greek word thronos. And it's translated in other places as a throne. So this is where the Antichrist throne is. So it appears that what the scripture is saying, that the darkness is actually localized to the city, the place where the Antichrist is reigning. So outside of the city, it's scorching, blazing hot, while inside the city, it's dark. And yet they still feel the heat of the sun. So I think it's likely what the Word of God is telling us here, that Because of the power and prestige of the Antichrist, he's able to have the best of what's still left in the world. So while the world is suffering, he's there with the water that he needs. He has the food that he needs and has all the luxuries that are concentrated into his kingdom. But God is showing him that he cannot escape this plague. So God aims this right at him and he stares him down. Satan's kingdom is a kingdom of darkness, spiritual darkness, and here we see it turned into literal darkness. And not the Antichrist, not Satan, not any of his angels has the power to reverse this darkness. So God is making it very clear. The Antichrist, as powerful as he may think that he is, and as powerful as Satan is, he cannot protect himself. God has his thumb on him. And whenever God wants to put an end to it, it will end. So here we see the pain is getting the best of them. There's these festering, bloody, raw nerve sores, and they're excruciating, and they're gnawing their tongues in pain. And what do they do? Well, it says here they still blaspheme. They know it's God, but they shake their fist in the face of God, and they curse him, and they think that they can win. So what they will do, they'll gather themselves together as if they're going to do something about it, and then they begin a march to the place of battle not knowing that all the while God is the one who's leading them where he wants them to go. They're going to follow God's plan. So what God is doing then, he's, he's pushing them. He's herding them like a, a cowboy herds cattle. He's pushing them into the corral. And then when he gets them all there, when he has them all trapped, that's when the carnage begins. Now, we're going to come back next week, and we're going to look at this, and we'll talk about the sixth sixth plague. And we'll see here how they think that they're in control, but God is actually the one who's pushing all the buttons to get them where he wants them, just like he pushes the buttons of nature to get his desired effect. So what we have here, then, is the other side of God. This is his wrath, and his wrath is exercised in supreme holiness, every bit as much as his love, his mercy, and his grace. That's the God that we serve. We have to see both sides of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we're able to spend in your word tonight. And Lord, um, these are 
terrible times and yet fascinating times for us to look into. We're just thankful that we know you as Lord and Savior. And we just pray, Lord, that anyone here tonight who hasn't come to the realization of this would see that you are the great God who controls all. We must trust you and put our faith in you. We must believe you in order to be safe from all of these calamities that will come upon the world. Bless us as we sing tonight, and we'll just give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.